Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. continuing a sermon series that we've been in for a little bit in the book of Exodus. And one of the things that, uh, that I love about uh, preaching and teaching the Old Testament is the ability to see that it really is, the Bible really is one story, right? That we find ourselves in the midst of a story that happened thousands of years ago. And we can see that, that we are, in many ways, uh, one people uh, with the people of Israel, Just as they were set free from slavery and as they journeyed uh, through a harsh and difficult wilderness on their way to their inheritance, uh, the New Testament tells us that we do too, right? That we too uh, in Christ have been set free from a life of slavery to sin and death, that we work our way through a world that is often hard and difficult. Uh, We wrestle with temptations uh, and suffering and we press on looking for an inheritance that's been promised to us in Jesus And so this morning, uh, we will be in Exodus chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. If you're willing and able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, After he had sent her home along with her two sons, the name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, and the name of the other, Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And he sent word to Moses. I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses said to his father-in-law, All that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. In that, he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. In Jethro, Moses' father-in-law brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. So there's a question that grows on you as you read the Old Testament. Uh, The question, what about everybody else? Right? I mean, from uh, the time that Abraham is called in Genesis chapter 12 to follow after God and to leave his homeland and to be God's special people, really the entire story of the Old Testament. 
hones in on one man and his family and the nation that's going to come out of them. It's all uh, focused on Abraham's family and the nation of Israel. But what about everybody else? Right? We live in a big world. Uh, we live in a world full of people of all sorts of different cultures and languages. Uh, people who lived and died and never even heard of Abraham or the people of Israel. Uh, what about all of those other people who are outside uh, of the people of God in the Old Testament? Does God care about the families and cultures and languages and nations of the earth? This is the problem that we feel in our own day and age, isn't it? When we ask, well, what, what's so special about the church? What about everybody else? Right? What about the people who don't believe like we believe? What about the people who uh, are not members uh, of a church? What should, go- what should guide the way that we direct and care about uh, those on the outside of the church, uh, on the outside of the people of Israel? How should we relate to outsiders? And our story this morning really is about that. It's a story of hospitality. It's a story about the posture that the people of God take to those outside their community. Hospitality. Hospitality is the way that outsiders are invited to belong and to become insiders. It's the way that strangers uh, are invited into homes to become families. The way that even enemies are not treated as enemies, but invited to become brothers and sisters. Hospitality uh, in the Old and New Testament is one of the main ways that the mission of God's people is described. Now, hospitality uh, can be thought of in our day and age uh, is a bit narrower uh, than I think it's intended to be. We can have a vision of hospitality that's reduced just to uh, entertaining, right? To inviting people into your home, to, uh, you know, good housekeeping and Martha Stewart and uh, serving Instagrammable, uh, you know, tablescapes for people, right? It can mean just kind of this narrow window of hosting and entertaining. But biblically, it, it refers to an entire posture towards your neighbors, a posture of hopeful openness towards our neighbors, one that invites outsiders into a place of belonging. This story comes right after the people of Israel in chapter 17 have been attacked uh, by a foreign group. They've been attacked by the Amalekites. Having been attacked, they go into battle against the Amalekites and are victorious. And you could be tempted into believing after that story that God's, uh, the posture of God's people towards outsiders was always going to be one of warfare. Right? Outsiders have posed a threat to God's people to this point in the story. Obviously, there were the people of Egypt who enslaved them for hundreds of years. Now they get out into the wilderness and they get attacked uh, by this other group of people. You could start to think, and the people of Israel could have been maybe justified in thinking, okay, I understand what kind of story we're in. We're in a story of battle and warfare against those who are not of us. Right? Everywhere that we go, we are going to be at threat from those on the outside. And so we need to adopt a warring posture that views every foreign presence in our life as a threat to be attacked. And yet in our story today, they're approached by a foreigner. Uh, Not just a foreigner, but we're told that he's a priest of the Midianites. We'll talk a little bit more about that, what that meant. But this means essentially that he led a foreign people in the worship of foreign gods. 
And he comes, and, we sh- and, and Moses shows that the posture to the outsider is not always one of warfare, but it can be one of hospitality and welcome. There's voices uh, in our own world that would convince the church that our relationship with outsiders has to always be one of warfare, uh, that we are stuck in some kind of unsolvable, intractable culture war that's a zero-sum game and that our neighbors are actually not our neighbors and potential family members, but our enemies in some kind of battle that started before we got here and we can only assume will continue long after us. And we need to learn this posture of hospitality, this posture that views our neighbors not as our enemies in a war, but as potential family members to love. Hospitality has been the mark of the Christian mission for a very long time. Benedict of Nursia, uh, a man uh, known to history as St. Benedict, was the founder of uh, the Western monastic tradition, uh, set up uh, monasteries all over from Italy all the way into the known world. It was through uh, Western monasticism beginning in, uh, around the five and six hundreds that really uh, Western Europe was evangelized and Western culture was preserved. And in Benedict's rule, uh, hospitality plays a major role. In every monastery, there was to be one particular person with a special job. His name was the porter, and his job was to answer the front door. That does not seem like an overly glamorous job, but it was vital uh, to the missionary witness in Benedict's vision. The porter was to sleep near the door at all times so that at any hour of day and night, anyone who came to the door could experience welcome. When the door, uh, when somebody knocked on the door, the porter was to yell out, and these are the words of Benedict, they were to welcome the newcomer with all the gentleness that comes from reverence of God and with all the warmth of love. They were to greet them with the words, thanks be to God, your blessing on us, please. Then they were to go and welcome them in. They were to bring out the other uh, members of the community to take care of their needs, to wash their feet, to dry their clothes, to give them a place to lodge. One contemporary Benedictine puts it this way about the importance of the porter. The way that we answer doors is the way that we deal with the world. The way that we answer doors is the way that we deal with the world. Think about that next time Willie calls you uh, to see if you're willing to help serve at the door on a given Sunday, <laughs> right? That, that, uh, the, the, the greeting team can seem like a, you know, a thankless activity. Nowadays, you're taking temperatures and taking names, but the way you answer the door is the way you relate to the world. Think about that in the ways that you engage with your neighbors. In her uh, memoir uh, of her conversion to Christianity, Lauren Winner tells the story of visiting a church. I love this story. She says, Few situations make me as uncomfortable as being a newcomer in a church where I know nothing and no one. Everyone else knows where to stand or when to stand and when to sit and when to bow and when to smile. Everyone else has someone to talk to during coffee hour. And there I stand, awkward and ill at ease, my inner introvert yelling at me to go home and curl up with a novel. Can I get an amen? Anybody feel that way sometimes when you go to church? On this foggy day, maybe some of you would rather be curled up with a novel even now. 
That was how it was my second Sunday in Charlottesville. I was at Christ Church where I knew exactly two people. One of them was my mother, and what single woman wants to get stuck at coffee hour eating donut holes with her mom? After the service ended, I managed to silence my introvert long enough to introduce myself to a couple sitting in the pew behind me. Hi, they said, so pleased to meet you. I complimented the wife's shoes, and the husband asked, asked if I enjoyed the sermon. And they said, if you don't have plans for the 4th of July, please come to our party. She goes on to tell the power that this simple act of hospitality had, uh, not just in helping her to get connected in a church, but actually getting her connected uh, to Jesus, who welcomes strangers to himself. Well, let's look at this story and what we can learn about the posture of hospitality that we're to take to the world. We're going to see that it's a posture of welcome, witness, and worship, because every preacher likes it when his three points start with the same letter. (laughs) Welcome, witness, and worship. First, welcome. Look at verse 7. Jethro comes. The uh, the circumstances around his coming are a little bit odd. Uh, This is Moses' father-in-law, the husband of his wife, Zipporah. And we're told that Moses, at some point, we don't know when, uh, sent his wife and children uh, to go back to her father-in-law. That detail is never given in the story. We don't know if it happened uh, before Moses went to Egypt. At some point coming out of Egypt, he said, hey, go stay with your dad for a little while um, while while we work uh, out this exodus. But uh, at this point, uh, having crossed the Red Sea, uh, you know, Pharaoh's army being uh, being long done, His father-in-law, Jethro, comes out to him and brings his wife and children. And interestingly, we don't get a lot of that reunion. Uh, You'd think that would be the story uh, that is focused on, Moses reuniting with his wife and kids. But instead, we get this intimate story between Moses and his father-in-law, a man who is a priest, as we said earlier, of foreign deities. And yet here's what we're told of their greeting, verse 7. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Moses, at this point, uh, is the ruler and leader of Israel, right? He is the the leader of this community. And whereas most uh, community leaders, most kings and and, uh, tribal chieftains of the ancient world, if they were to receive a guest, uh, they would stay in their palace or they, they would stay in their lodging and let the other person come into them. Uh, to bow down to them, to pay homage to them. And yet Moses here runs out to meet his father-in-law. And he shows uh, intimate affection with him. He kisses him. He bows to him. He inquires of his welfare. And here we see uh, this begins the process. This story ends with Jethro uh, really coming uh, to a conversion, uh, to him uh, leaving behind his gods and giving a worship uh, offering to the God of Israel. And here we see the normal way that people are enfolded into the people of God is through acts of mutuality, affection, and trust, right? That the ordinary way that the gospel goes forward, the ordinary way that outsiders are brought in to become insiders is through simple relational trust building and friendship, right? Yes, there's a, you know, if if we were to get around uh, and tell each other one another's stories, Yes, there would be some of us, I'm sure, that, uh, that came to faith through maybe hearing a, a sermon on a radio. Somebody came to faith through going to a Billy Graham crusade or something like that. But I bet if we pressed in, most of us have in our life somewhere the story of someone who befriended us, 
someone who listened to us, someone who cared about us, someone who invested their life into our life, loving us as a token of the friendship and the love that Jesus offers. Moses shows that his relationship with his father-in-law is one of mutual trust, mutual respect, and mutual concern. And this would have happened across a great deal of difference. Right? We don't know a ton about the Midianites in the Old Testament, uh, but what we know about them is that they lived outside of Israel. They were descendants of Abraham, but outside of the covenant line. Uh, they became, they're usually mentioned uh, in reference to the Moabites, uh, and they usually were a part of a group of people who worshipped the Canaanite deities. So people, the, uh, if you were to read your Old Testament, a couple names that show up often uh, are the name Baal, uh, who was the fertility god of that region, and Asherah, his wife, uh, who uh, would be a constant temptation of the people uh, throughout the Old Testament to idolatry and to worshipping them. And so this was, these were the gods that Jethro served. These were gods that at different times uh, required human sacrifice uh, in their worship. This was a people who were often, usually when they're mentioned in the Old Testament at this era, are enemies of Israel. And yet still, Moses goes out, embraces him, kisses him, and welcomes him. And I love this detail. They inquired about one another's welfare. They cared about each other. Uh, the word that's used for welfare here uh, is the word shalom, right? If you've learned any Hebrew from being uh, in this church, probably you've not. Uh, but if, uh, if you have, uh, shalom is probably one of them. I like to talk about this word uh, because it means more than welfare. Uh, shalom is that biblical word that means their holistic well-being and peace, right? Usually it's translated peace, and it means more than just the absence of conflict, but it means the presence of love and well-being and blessing. We're told that shalom is the ultimate destiny of the world, right? That God is bringing his peace to bear in the world. And Moses asks Jethro about his shalom. He inquires about how he's doing. Is he experiencing this kind of well-being? I love this picture of mutual concern for one another. Basic to our uh, relationships with our neighbors has to be this caring about how they are actually doing, right? This investment in their welfare. Now, of course, as uh, the church is right to be concerned with uh, the eternal well-being of our neighbors, we're, we're right to be concerned with proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming uh, the hope of everlasting life. But we should also be concerned with their well-being in this world. We should be concerned uh, with their jobs and their families and their relationships and their hopes and their disappointments. That we should place our welfare in their welfare and recognize that we are joined together. Jeremiah, uh, the prophet Jeremiah puts it this way in Jeremiah 29. Seek the welfare, again, the shalom of the city. Notably, that was the city of Babylon at the time where Israel was in exile. Even though they've carried you into exile, even though uh, they've taken away so much from you, still seek their well-being. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, because in its welfare is your welfare. Right? That in this community, in the human family, you are bound up together. And you should care about how your neighbors are. 
You know, there's a part of the Christian witness uh, that involves proclaiming truth, and we're going to talk about that. But there's also a part of the Christian witness that involves listening, right? Historically, we have been better at talking than we have been at listening, Uh, better at uh, proclaiming what we know and what we believe than being willing to enter into the lives of our neighbors and to listen genuinely to what they believe, uh, to what they've gone through, uh, to where their hopes and fears are. I think we'll find that as we learn to listen, we'll learn to love, we'll learn to care about our neighbors, we'll learn to understand actually where their actual needs are, where they're looking for the hope that they might find in Christ. There's a a minister in our denomination, uh, another Presbyterian minister, who's developed something of an evangelism ministry uh, by going to places and just listening to people tell the stories of their tattoos. I love this idea. Uh, right, the idea being that if you cared enough about something to write it on your body, that it more often than not is connected to some part of your story, someone you've lost, something that at least at one point in your life you believed in enough to say, yes, I want that on me forever. Right, that if you listen, it's a way into listening to what people care about. And so he goes and he sets up little booths at uh, tattoo conventions, at bike week down in Daytona, and just says, hey, sit down and tell me your story. Tell me about your tattoos. And in that, finds ways to share with them uh, the hope that Jesus offers. To welcome, we have to listen. To inquire about people's welfare. So then uh, we see not only the importance of welcome, but the importance of witness. Look at verses 8 and 9. Here in our text, then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. What Moses shows us here is that the content of Christian witness whether it was way back then in Moses' life or if it's today in Jacksonville in our life, that the content of Christian witness is about what God has done for us, right? That, that when, we, when we speak, when we go to give utterance to our faith, what we're, giving, uh, what we're pointing towards is what God has done for us. That's what the good news is. It's the good news of what God has done for us. For Moses, it was what God had done for them in Egypt and at the Red Sea in every step along the way. For us, it's the good news of what Jesus has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. But Christian witness is a pointing away from ourselves to what God has done. Right? It's not a pointing to ourselves and saying, look how wonderful we are. Right? It's not saying, look how uh, well-run and smooth our churches are, look how slick our advertising campaigns are, how airtight our arguments are, how upstanding our moral lives. But it's a pointing to God's strength, God's power, God's grace. And if we're going to point to God's grace, it means that we learn to tell the stories of our own weakness. Right? It means that we learn uh, to point not to our own goodness, I, that, that's how I grew up thinking about my witness as a Christian. Uh, I remember hearing often that if you uh, slipped up too much, that you would somehow damage your witness to the gospel. And there's some truth to that, right? I mean, hypocrisy uh, does turn people off to the gospel. To claim to be one way and to be another, to claim to be without sin, and yet to harbor sin in secret. 
But uh, more often than not, witness in the gospel works the way that Paul tells us it works. When he says that he's learned to boast in his weakness so that he can boast only in the cross. Right? It's not saying, hey, neighbors, uh, look at me. Look at my amazing family. Look at my upstanding life. Look at how good I am. But it's learning to say, I am weak and I am sinful. I've blown it more times than I can care to count. And I've found hope because of a great God. Right? Not because of my goodness, but because of his goodness. Not because of my intelligence, but because of his righteousness and his love for me. It's going to require us to learn to talk about our sin and our need in the present tense. Right? And not to tell our stories as though we used to be sinners someday back there and then one day at youth camp, God saved me. But to learn to say, no, no, no. Let me tell you about how God saved me yesterday when I was lost in my own anger or my own lust or my own laziness. And God's, God drew me out of it. God gave me grace once again. I don't know if you're anything like me, but I am uncomfortable with how much my witness is tied to my weakness. Uh, I would, you know, I can see myself if I was Moses, right? Your father-in-law has come to visit you, right? Most guys like to come off looking pretty good in front of their father-in-laws, right? Most guys like to, you know, uh, make their father-in-laws feel like they haven't uh, sent their daughter uh, out to live with uh, somebody who can't take care of her. I might be prone, if I was Moses, to exaggerate the story so that I came off a little better, right? Make it not about what God has done, but hey, let me tell you about my amazing spiritual leadership. I led these people out of Egypt, and then when we were at the bank of the Red Sea and everybody was freaking out, I, in my faith, stood up and I hit the, hit the sea with the, my staff and it split, and I led the people boldly through. I might be prone to cast the story so that I'm the good guy, so that I'm the hero, and yet Moses doesn't do that. He says, look what God has done for us in our weakness, in our smallness, in our sin, in our shame. God has been a great God for a weak people. And over and over, that's the way in the Old Testament that God's election, his choosing of Israel works. We're told that he chose Israel not because they were better, smarter, more numerous, or more powerful than anyone. He seems to have chosen the smallest and the weakest in order that his power would be shown more purely and more clearly. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that he does the same in the gospel, that he continues to choose the weak and the foolish things of this world in order to show his glory to the wise and to the powerful. So welcome, witness, and then worship. Starting in verse 9, Look, Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And then Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. These little words, now I know. Now I know that the Lord is God. Uh, this is really the, the, the hope that pervades the Old Testament and the New for how Christian witness and hospitality works. 
that one day all the nations of the earth will stream towards Jerusalem and towards the Messiah. Isaiah begins with this vision of all the nations of the earth bringing their gifts to the temple in worship. Here we see Jethro, a leader of Midian, a priest of Midian, coming uh, at the foot of Mount Sinai, right before, the, uh, before God gives his covenant at the mountain of God, we're told in verse 5. Before the people go up and make their covenant with God, there's an outsider there offering his worship to God is a sign that this is the destiny of the entire world to be drawn in to Israel's hope in the true God. That this welcome uh, leads, this welcome and witness leads ultimately uh, to the worship of the entire world, every tribe, tongue, and nation being offered to Jesus. We see this, uh, the nations of the world coming to God and bringing their gifts Throughout the Old Testament, we start to see it when Solomon uh, takes over for his father, David. And the nations of the world come and bring their gifts to the building of the temple. We see it here even in this story. We didn't read it, but immediately after this, after this uh, conversion of Jethro, he immediately starts contributing. He tells Moses, uh, Moses, you're wearing yourself out uh, by trying to lead all of this people yourself. And he essentially gives him wisdom about how to divide up the people under elders to care for them. So here's this, uh, this may be a, a bit of wisdom that he learned in leading in Midian, some way about the way that Midian religion worked. And he comes and immediately offers his gift to the community, offers his wisdom to Moses, and Moses takes it into account. A sign, even here at the beginning of God's people, that all people are welcome at the temple of God, that all people are welcome in his family. You know, in the nativity set uh, that we have set up in our dining room, it's a pretty standard-looking nativity set. It's got all the regular cast of characters. There's Mary, there's Mary and Joseph, and there's baby Jesus. Uh, there's, on the outside, you know, there's some shepherds with their sheep and their donkeys and all that. And then there's these three characters on the other side that are dressed a little bit differently than everybody else, right? Where everybody else is uh, wearing the clothes of a Near Eastern peasant, uh, wearing their uh, robes and their staffs. Uh, these men are wearing tunics and robes, and they're riding on camels. This is, of course, uh, the three wise men from the east who were told in Matthew's gospel uh, were looking at the heavens, likely astrologers, uh, again participants in a pagan non-Israelite religion, who see the star and follow all the way until they come to God's Son, uh, not really in the manger, it comes a little bit after, but for the, you know, for the good of the nativity scene, we put them there. Uh, but this happened a little bit after that they got there. Why were they there? Because God is a God of hospitality. God is a God who wanted, even in those birth stories of his son, to be, to be clear that this wasn't just the hope of Israel, but it was the hope of the entire world. This wasn't just for those who are insiders, but this was about the gathering of the outsiders so that outsiders became insiders and became family. We remain hopefully open to the world because our God is open to the world. Our God wants the boundaries between the church and the world to be permeable so that people are always coming in, always finding hope in Him so that outsiders are always becoming insiders. 
We show hospitality to our neighbors because God shows hospitality to our neighbors. We invest our love and our heart and our lives into them because God is invested in them. We listen to their stories because God listens to their stories. Ultimately, the hospitality that Moses extends to Jethro here isn't his hospitality. It's the hospitality of God himself. Look at the last verse that we read. Aaron, Moses, and all the elders ate bread with Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, before God. Right? God himself was a part of this meal. This is going to be a sign of God's covenant meal that he, he shares with his people over and over again. That when people come to God, they eat together. Is a sign of communion and community between God and man. So let's adopt a posture of openness and hospitality and love towards our neighbors. Recognizing uh, that God does too. Because the Father has promised the Son and us His church, in the words of Isaiah 60, verse 3, that nations shall come to His light and kings to the brightness of His rising. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us. Um, we live in a world um, where all of the forces around us pull us uh, into polarization, uh, into viewing our uh, neighbors who disagree with us as our competitors and as our enemy. Uh, Lord, there's so much in us uh, that becomes self-protective and cynical in this life. Uh, but Lord, help us uh, to remain hopefully open towards our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends. Lord, help us to extend your hospitality uh, to our neighbors. Lord, help us uh, to view even those, uh, you know, the gospel doesn't even let us treat our enemies as enemies. Uh, those who hate us and, and, and make life hard for us, we're to view as our friends and to extend love and hospitality. And so, Lord, help us to do that. Lord, help us to be a people who take your way, uh, your way of welcome and love and hospitality because we serve a God who is welcoming the entire world to himself. Lord Jesus, help us uh, as your servants to go out, uh, as you told in your parable, to go out into the alleys, into the back streets, into the country lanes, welcoming the blind and the lame and the beggars uh, to come into your great banquet. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.